Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hey, welcome back to our Investing Summit. This is Darius Dell here, Senior Analyst on the Hedgeye Macro Team. I'm joined in the studio with Neil Howe, renowned demographer, author, economist, historian, you name it, uh, author of over, I want to say, a dozen best-selling books, uh, including Generations and one of my favorite books, The Fourth Turning. Um, you, you are one of the world's most foremost experts on generational theory, paradigm shifts in consumer behavior, public policy, et cetera, et cetera. You advise Clearly, I buy side clients, clients, uh, large corporations like Disney, you know, large organizations like the Marines, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you name it, you touch it, you touch it, you name it. Um, so that clearly gives us a lot of scope in what we can talk about. But one thing I think is uh, so very important because it's on a lot of investors' minds right now is this concept of, of, of a U.S. recession. Where are we in the business cycle? What's the probability of recession? Um, what are the indicators you're looking at to sort of gauge that? And, and, and ultimately, what do you think is the, the most appropriate sort of path forward as it relates to policy and, and the policy response to recession? I like that. You yeah. just jump right I into jump it, right don't in, you? Man. You don't Absolutely. waste any time. No, no, <laughs> Just no, cut no. to the bottom line. Totally. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And it makes you think about, you know, exactly how to phrase that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we are in the business cycle is one thing, but exactly when the next recession is going to come is something else. Very true. Uh, and just to mention that you and I, I think in about a month, we're going to be doing a big covering mm-hmm. the waterfront Deep on recession indicators. Yeah, looking at all of them, looking at their track record, looking at, and what do they indicate? Some indicators, uh, particularly employment-related ones, for example, or cons- uh, uh, sentiment-related ones, are very good at telling you where you are in the business cycle because mm-hmm. they follow a very good trend on the business cycle. You know, mm-hmm. future versus current, you know, how you think the economy is doing as a, as a sentiment indicator, for yeah. example, are very good at telling you where you are, but they're not necessarily good at telling you exactly when it's going to end. Yes. Uh, others are really good at indicating when it's possible that the downturn might happen, like ISM, you know, like the uh, all the PMIs, whether mm-hmm. it's market or ISM, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's the question. So are you going for, uh, and others are really good at telling you when the recession is just about to begin. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, the unemployment rate turns up more than 0.5 or 0.6. That's a great indicator that either the recession has already started. Totally. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> So that's great, but it, it gives you no lead time. No lead so you time. understand all the problems here. And then you've got the problem about false positives and false negatives. Mm-hmm. So every recession indicator has this problem. Uh, now, the one that I talk a lot about on my podcast is, uh, is the uh, yield curve inversion, particularly the, uh, the three-month, 10-year inversion. Mm-hmm. This is the one that the, was originally identified by Ruben Kessel way back in 1965, and, it, and it's the one that's most validated by the Fed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been good for 10, uh, I should say 11 of the last 10 recessions. Mm-hmm. So it's had one false positive, and that was in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a policy sort of response that prevented a recession? There, there was, mm-hmm. yes. There was a very timely uh, reduction in the Fed funds rate, although at that time they didn't target the Fed funds rate. That was. Uh, 
Uh, you they know, that was the money supply. Yeah, they they just you know, but it but it effectively was that, mm -hmm. and it uh, it did not result in a recession. Although it did result in uh, GDP growth. You know, the late sixties generally high GDP growth. Very. GDP growth for one quarter sank all the way down to like 0.2, so it was almost negative for one quarter. Mm -hmm. So they just stick that, saved it. That was before Greenspan. You yeah. know? that was uh, that was yeah, that was the uh, that was the old school. Martin. Yeah, that was yeah. McChesney Martin. Martin. William yeah. McChesney Martin, yeah. who was our you know was there forever. Totally. Um, and and he avoided it. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, it's been flawless. And we we start our count by looking at. Uh, five or six consecutive market closes with those two being you know a negative difference mm -hmm. and that happened in the end of May mm -hmm. of this year yep. it actually almost happened in the end of March yep. actually had five but it didn't go for the six so mm -hmm. I didn't count it yep. but at the end of May it went you know we've been under almost continuously last two market closes we've been up we've been so up. you know yeah, again we're, we're five, so you've five got basis points away. but the indicator doesn't care about that. Yep. Once it gives a certain number of closes, it very often, by the way, dips up and out, goes mm -hmm. into inversion and out of reversion. But the general count is about six to 16 months, which gives us to what, the end of this year to the end to September of next year. Yep. Yep. Now I'm sure that uh, uh, Elizabeth- Before the onset of recession or before the recession is- uh, uh, The onset of the recession. The onset, yes. Now I'm sure Elizabeth Warren wants it sooner, uh, and I'm sure that Donald Trump wants it later. Yeah. And in fact, if it is September, we could very well be in it in the election and not even know it yet. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure that that would be Trump's great scenario. You know? <laughs> so, but but uh, that's one I've been following, uh, and I know one that you and Keith talk a little bit about on the Micro Show a lot is... Um, is the relationship between uh, uh, earnings recessions and economic recessions? Obviously, mm -hmm. this they are associated. One generally tends to precede the other. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the economic, you know, earnings recession, economic recession. But here you have a lot more f false positives. I mean, oh, we totally. had one in 2016. We had totally. one in the mid 80s. I mean, those were both coincided with big um, uh, energy price collapses. Interestingly yes. enough. Yep, yep. And we had another one actually in the late 60s, exactly when that was the false positive for the uh, yield curve inversion. Indeed, that was another that was another one. But generally, they have uh, most of them have preceded recessions. So you know, we got one going now. Yeah, uh, yes, I guess we we'll see we'll see what they come in. But I think you know, facts set and all those guys. I mean, you track that more I than track, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were currently, if you go out the, those slides, seventy six up, Josephine. So we're currently, we've seen 22 companies report third quarter earnings. Uh, aggr on aggregate, their, their, their revenue is up 3.5%, but their earnings growth rate is down 13.3%. Right. Now, it's not going to stay down 13.3%. Clearly, you know, these, these companies have gotten up front, or sorry, not slide 76, 73, rather, my apologies. You know, clearly, it's not going to stay down there, but we still believe that earnings in Q3 of, of this year, as they're cycling that cycle peak compare, uh, growth, that cycle peak growth rate in Q3 of 18, you know, we think earnings could be down anywhere between five to eight percent um, if you sort of do some some of the math that we're doing with respect to operating margins. Because again, we, we're seeing so many cyclical factors become right. a real big headwind in margins. We have the dollar strength, you know, on a year-over-year -year basis, the dollar's up, you know, four, up roughly three to four um, percent. You, you're seeing sort of unit labor cost inflation through the lens of private sector wage growth, and obviously sort of employment cost index, you know, basically at the cycle highs as the most recent month. And then obviously you're just seeing a, a deceleration in growth and inflation. So the price is received. People, and people don't understand the wage inflation. 
And uh, oh, last, yeah. last time the employment report came out, the big news apparently was the paradox. You know, why, was, why were average wages you know, going down? And, but they didn't look at non-supervisory average wages. They're not, they're not controlling for the quality, because we're bringing in a lot of low-skilled workers now. So mm -hmm. of course the average goes down. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the Atlanta wage chart, you look at anyone who actually controls for the Yes. The skill level, totally. and it shows you this thing speeding we're up. We're at cycle highs. Exactly. Um, so so that's, a, that's slide 39. Yeah. So, oh, great. You got that. We got a little sound and light show here. That's great. <laughs> so, um, and this, by the way, leads into the question of, oh, you want to you wanna look? Oh, no, you can, you can speak. Yeah. I'll just leave it on the board. You can speak. Yeah, okay. This leads to the question of, of if and when we get to this next recession, is it, you know, how is it likely to turn out? Is it likely to be mild? You know, is it going to be like, um, I don't know, 91, you know, one of these kind of relatively mild recessions mm -hmm. in terms of GDP oh, one, recession? I mean, you could barely see uh, the recession. Or one, one. yeah, a one would be another one. Um, or is it going to be severe? Uh, I think you can make the case for severity in the following way. First of all, uh, uh, profit margins. Profit margins have a ways to come down Slide now. 40. We're, we're record high. See, you got everything here. This is great. Um, you know, you're, it depends how you measure it, but if you, if you don't, you know, if you just take BEA, you're at you're like 10, 10, 11 percent, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, measure. Uh, but they could, they could turn in half. Now, what would that do? Well, you they know? always mirror. This chart right. shows they always exactly. mirror back down to, you know, 6, 7 exactly. percent. But if you are reverting to mean, the mean, the, we're a lot further from the mean. That's my, yes. whole, that's my whole point. Yeah. I think the other issue is corporate credit. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. A lot of corporate credit, non-financial corporate credit, record share of GDP. Yep. About 79% roughly. Very yeah, large share of that is uh, uh, obviously high yield. Mm -hmm. And even of the you know, investment grade, a lot of it is, you know, triple B. I mean, you just have a lot of the, the risk quality skewing. of credit quality is skewing credit down is the curve. Yeah. Um, and I think another one is interest rates. So how low are we to zero? How much can the Fed respond? Mm -hmm. So most monetary economists I talk to just assume this next recession is going to last a lot longer because the Fed can't really do much. So normally, if, you know, in any prior recession, remember, Europe has been through this already a couple times, totally. but we haven't been through it mm -hmm. since 2008. And normally when your, you know, Fed funds rate is much higher, you have a lot more to cut. Mm -hmm. So you can go way into negative real interest rate territory. Presumably, we will not be able to do that, mm -hmm. right? We'll just go down to zero and just stay stuck there, which mm -hmm. means the whole thing will last longer because we don't want to have that kind of stimulus unless we opt for the fiscal route. But of course, that depends on politics. Well, and we that would be my final comment yes. is how's the next recession going to interface with where the United States finds itself politically. Well, that's a great sort of segue to our, 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 what I wanted to talk about next is sort of you know this, this this, on both sides of the aisle, you can sort of see this sort of groundswell support for you know something that effectively resembles modern monetary theory. Mm -hmm. Now, the 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 you know the deficit you know sort of central bank finance deficit spending. Now, what we spend money on will be you know be determined by who ultimately sort of takes the White House, who takes Capitol Hill. But ultimately, you, you're starting to see much uh, a greater groundswell of support for these types of policies. Walk me through the sort of likelihood of that sort of being one implemented into the election. If that's a rising uh, high probability scenario, uh, do you think that it could be uh, potentially, and then sort of after the election, what that could potentially look like? 
You know, one one of the fascinating things that's happening now is you see the spread of the sort of you know populism and authoritarianism around the world, mm -hmm. uh, both on the right and the left. That's what makes it interesting. And uh, it, you you know my mantra on this: I think people are are too much fixated by the difference between right versus left, mm -hmm. and not on the difference between where both of these sides are going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is toward um, uh, a greater role for government. And a greater role for you know some kind of fiscal policy which brings the community together, and by some definition, either a right wing or left wing definition. But both sides are going there, and I, I might just say, fitting for this day, we might just comment on PIS, the Lawn Lawn Justice Party, just yeah. one in Poland, so it's in there for another four years. Yeah. And how are they how are they getting their support? How is they you know this kind of right wing populism getting appeal in in, in Poland? They are right-wing culturally, but they're left-wing economically. Mm -hmm. So they're doing all of these benefit programs, you know, for young families with kids and so on, and that's how they're getting their support. So you can see how Trump is beginning to remake the Republican Party in this direction. Now, yes. Trump probably will not complete that transition, but ultimately the Republican Party will become a right-wing populist party in the same right. Mm -hmm. In the in the same mold, yeah. while Elizabeth Warren makes it a right way, a left so wing. Just shift the whole populist. scale to the left. Exactly. So it'll be the same thing, but with just a different cultural veneer, right? Gotcha. But anyway, that's where we're going, and all of it feeds into the greater possibility of radical fiscal innovation, which is modern monetary theory is radical. what you're talking about, right? Absolutely. Radical. And that couldn't, you know, it's, it'll come just in time when we're stuck there at the zero bound. Yes, absolutely. So there's this view that monetary policy is largely out of bullets. I think that view is, is certainly warranted if you believe that, you know, you look at sort of the, the, the economic outcomes associated with monetary easing have become increasingly sort of, you're hitting lower highs and lower highs, the response is lower and lower and, and more muted each time. So it does. It does it's kind of a, like an insulin-resistant uh, yes. diabetic. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it no longer responds to the medicine. Yes, exactly. Well, the markets, the markets respond to the medicine. Yeah. If you you, know, you tend to see you know, the economy outside, doesn't. Yeah. The economy doesn't. So the, you know you can sort of get this massive bifurcation in the markets, but ultimately, what's likely to happen? You're you're, you're going to be unable to sustain record corporate credit in the United States as a share of GDP and certainly an equity market at, you know, by all sort of historical valuation metrics are probably, you know, a touch overvalued right. to the extent that you can't get a sustained recovery in corporate profits. So to me, going back to that chart on slide 40, into our broader macro view, you know, this is really the ultimate bear case for the markets, but potentially the ultimate bull case for, you know, sort of society in the, in the, in the quote unquote populace. Mm -hmm. You know, this, the mean reversion of these lines could actually, so you, you, right. you call this, we call this, you know, at least prior to 2016, 2017, you know, it was largely the jobless recovery. You know, you, you had this big divergence in terms of market outcomes relative to sort of the mean economic outcome of the mean median family. Could that reverse? And is that something that we've seen? Is, uh, one, is there a historical corollary of that reversing in such a strong, sustained fashion? And secondarily, has that, was that historically very negative for, for, for markets? Uh, there, there is uh, an historical example of that, and that would be the 1930s, mm. right? Uh, <laughs> that's not, that's not, not well, good. Well, but I mean, it's the obvious one. Uh, so all the measures of Gini coefficient inequality, the extent we have them, either by income or by wealth, you know, peaked in 29. Mm -hmm. Uh, but by the late 30s, it had hugely improved. 
and certainly World War II was great. That was wonderful. You know, total war is great. It's great for GDP. At, at equali and also equalizing wealth and income. You have huge inflation, which basically inflates your way out of all the wealth of a lot of people who are locked in. Think of all the people who are locked into nominal war bonds and stuff, and oh, all the wealthy yes. people. So you inflate your way out of that. And then you have all of this new middle class, this whole new econ post-war economy open to all comers, right? Mm -hmm. Open to this broad new middle class, went to college for the first time, you know, the GI Bill, everything else, right? So as a result, we brought down inequality enormously. And inequality reached its all-time low in the, the late 1960s, 60s. when the last of the, the GI generation who, who went through World, who came of age in World War II, was beginning to retire. Mm -hmm. And uh, they created an America that was largely, you know, a very strong suburban middle class. Uh, and and they hugely upped Social Security benefits. We had enormous increases in Social Security benefits in the late 60s, early 70s. We gave the 100% coal indexing. We had Medicaid, Medicaid, you know, the great society. We had yeah. all that stuff coming on stream. And, and then they began to pass into retirement. Then we had Watergate. And then boomers took over and it went all the other direction, right? <laughs> then we had well, deregulation, the tax cuts, and, uh -huh. and, and then everyone began to fortify themselves. But I've always said that boomers are very comfortable with a more individualistic society. And when they were still in college, we thought that boomers just wanted individualism and the culture to say what they wanted to say, you know, to have the kind of music they wanted to have. Mm -hmm. But later on, we knew that the individualism extended to the economy as well. Totally. So this is very much a, a generation which prizes individualism in every aspect, every realm of life. And, and now they are the older generation. Well, that creates a lot of tension between the younger generations, which very clearly value social cohesion, community. community. Yeah. I mean, you see, you see everything from, you know, the sharing economy to social media to everything else, and and you see it in. We had one question that we used. We did a um, uh, a survey for the Congressional Institute. It it, you know, it's a it's one of those institutes for. Uh, the parties in Congress. Mm -hmm. Actually, they did their surveys for all of the GOP. Mm -hmm. So we, we surveyed millennials for them. We gave them a rather disturbing finding that if you ask the question, you ask Americans of all ages, what would you rather government should do? Should government reinforce the principle of self-reliance or government reinforce the principle of community? Just that one question. Hmm. And you separate uh, over 50 versus under 30 voters by about 30 percentage points on that question. Wow. And it doesn't matter which party they belong to. In other words, the gap between old and young Republicans is just as large as between old and young Democrats. Wow. Um, it's really interesting. It would, so so that's, that's, that's the difference. Can you unpack what is, it, what is specifically driving this sort of desire for community and how you think that's likely to play out? Because clearly there's going to be some sort of tension. You know, you have it already is. There are, well, yeah, that's I mean, an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> that's an understatement. We saw, we saw in the, uh, the, the midterm in 2018 mm -hmm. the largest age split uh, between, you know, again, uh, under 35 and over 50 uh, that we've ever seen in an election. Uh, and that was, in other words, voting for Republican versus voting Democrats. Millennials voting for Democrats. Two-thirds of them voted for Democrats. So that's very large age split. 
we, we forget, and everyone says, well, the young always vote for liberals. Actually, we forget that back in the early 90s, Gen yeah. Xers were actually slightly voting more for the conservatives. Totally. totally. You know, Gen Xers were not that kind of generation. Yes. And so, we, anyway, we forget this uh, uh, in, in retrospect. But this is a generation that very much wants, again, this, this whole, this, these whole themes of community authority. And uh, I've often said that this whole notion of a fourth turning, right, mm -hmm. is predicated on the notion that is just the opposite of an awakening, very mm -hmm. much the opposite of what we had in the 1970s. Can you take a step back and actually okay. describe in some well, detail the, what those are, mean? These are different people. phases of mm -hmm. the social cycle, mm -hmm. basically lasting the entire length of a human life. So you're talking about a cycle that lasts 80 or 90 years, right? Mm -hmm. but, but in one phase, you know, the first phase we have a lot of order, mm -hmm. um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of community, maybe more of the community than even a lot of people want, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, but society has a great deal of, and these tend to be post-crisis eras. Everyone comes together, everyone, you know, circles the wagons. Uh, these are the great barbecues of American history. We just sort of, you know, and, 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 and individualists and, and often minorities are left on the outside. But it's very much a time of social solidarity. That was a, equivalent to the American high, the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John Kennedy, for example. Yep. It was a period when boomers were children, the silent generation was coming of age, and the GI generation was slowly beginning to enter midlife, and ultimately they took the presidency in 19, late 1960 mm -hmm. with JFK, right? A new generation born in this century, you remember that was JFK? <laughs> okay, so, and then an awakening is a time when everyone wants to throw, what, throw off all that conformity and community, you know, they want to, they want to uh, self-actualize and they want to get in touch with their own you know, individual desires and needs. And society individuates. Society wants less of this order, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then in the third turning, which is what we had particularly during the late 80s and 90s and, and early 00s, is a time when everyone enjoys the individualism. Mm -hmm. and, and, and all the old institutions basically step back, you know, under Reagan. Yeah. Step back and say, this is great. Yeah. And everyone's happy with it. But a fourth, <laughs> a fourth turning is a time when suddenly people want more order than institutions give. So this is the opposite of an awakening. <laughs> it's the opposite of an awakening. The, in the awakening, institutions are supplying more order than people want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you can see this is a reversal. Yeah. And this is happening around the world. This isn't just happening in the United States. In fact, it's not even happening primarily in the United States. It's happening in the UK. It's happening yeah. throughout Europe, particularly Southern Europe and East Asia. Brazil, I mean, you look Philippines. at Narendra Modi, Xi Jinping, Shinzo Abe, even look at Rodrigo Duterte. Duterte. Here's what's interesting. All these leaders are more favored by the young than the old. That goes against the whole idea that we used to think of back in the 70s and 80s. You remember when uh, we had Marcos in the Philippines, for example. Mm -hmm. It was the older Filipinos who wanted him and the young didn't want him. That has reversed. And, and that, to me, is an interesting indicator of when you go from a post-war mood to a pre-war mood or a pre-crisis mood is when younger people start wanting more um, order, more security uh, than older people. Right? And is it drive for security that's driving this? Risk of, I mean, risk this aversion. is a, a profoundly risk-averse generation. Yes. And they don't like an economy of sort of, you know, 
entrepreneurship and individualism and winner-take-all and all that stuff. As, I, as I've pointed out on many presentations here, I've probably some with you, mm -hmm. uh, this is a generation actually less inclined to start new businesses than young people have been for several decades going back into the past. Mm -hmm. the, the stereotype that millennials are all you know, starting new businesses in Silicon Valley is completely off the mark. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of the best and the brightest go to Silicon Valley to get very comfortable jobs with their credentials with Gen X employers yes. or, Gen, or Boomer employers, exactly. right? Who, who have taken risks and started these big companies. But, but millennials want a more ordered world, and you, you see that around the world. And, and, and it also leads to a certain kind of, kind of ethnocentric populism in much of the world, which is not really associated with the left at all. It's very often associated with the right. It's certainly, I mean, you look at Narendra Modi, I mean, it's it's great for Hindus, not mm -hmm. so great for Muslims. And yeah. then you look next next door in Burma, China. China. great for Buddhists, not so great for Muslims. You look yeah. at China again, yeah. you know. So the great Han, you know, everything is around this new this new kind of you know Han China Confucian oriented sense of hierarchy and and um, uh, a stability, uh, just like they had under the old emperors. So. This is the transition that's taking place now, yeah. and it's. Um, um, I, I think you could fairly say that in those broad outlines, it's, it's similar to the '30s uh, in yeah. that sense. Yeah, which obviously weren't a great, great for markets. Um, well, that, that wasn't a great time for markets, but, but at the bottom of the '30s, what a great time to buy! Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> buying opportunities. Yeah. Seriously. Totally. Um, so. Well, the transition. Out of a fourth turning, you know, at some point exactly. prior to that transition, exactly. it's a great buying opportunity. Exactly. But you would argue that we're not necessarily close to that point yet. No, we're not. No, we're certainly not there yet. And but that comes at a time when you're actually truly beginning to transform institutions and create new institutions. And that's something that millennials, I think, want to be on the ground floor of uh, when that happens. Yeah. So you're effectively what you're, what you're telling me is that. AOC is not an individual. They'll be more like her on both the left and the right. In terms they're, of they're already are. Yeah. They just aren't known like AOC is. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like the squad, the gang, the, the gang of four. Yeah. You know, but uh, uh, but by the but you know that's a case where Trump really invites that. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure that Trump, if Trump could run against the gang of four in Congress, that would be his perfect scenario. He would love to do that. Right. Oh, absolutely. So you mentioned China. Uh, I think it's obviously with the U.S.-China trade dispute or trade war, whatever you want to call it, right. clearly having a, a sort of, you know, it's front and center with a lot of investors' minds. You know, we continue to believe that the cycle's been the tail wagging the dog. But, but you know, it, it may be, because, you know, as you've noticed on the macro show, uh, everyone's so focused on China. Mm -hmm. Every little thing that comes out of the Trump White House, oh, gee, I, I just think it's a love fest today. And suddenly the market like goes, I mean, it's crazy. And it really makes you think that people don't have anything else they're looking at, right? Yeah. They don't have any other ground. Where are we in the cycle? What are all the indicators saying? What's happening in the economic momentum of mm -hmm. Asia right now, of Europe right now? We see all that stuff. <laughs> it's horrendous. And it's as though none of that matters. They're just looking at one thing that could turn it all around, mir miraculously. Well, the Occam's razor, it, investing, the, the issue with using Occam's razor approach to investing is that obviously markets are just sort of multi-dimensional, 
their multi-duration, the markets. Investors across the globe are, are looking at all sorts of different things to determine what the appropriate price of a particular exactly. asset is. And so if you have a very narrow focus on, you know, sort of what you think is driving, quote unquote, the market or the markets, and it, you know, there's an outcome associated with that narrow focus, you could actually potentially set yourself up for a lot of pain because you're not looking at all the other potential, potential indicators. You know, one of the things we continue to talk about is what is the probability that the U.S. economy, the Chinese economy, the European economy don't accelerate in Q4 as the comparative base effect models would imply they probably should, you know, in terms of just right. probability, but from a frequentist probability perspective, it's likely that these economies start to accelerate. But if you go back to Q2 of this year and to Q3 of this year, both China and Europe were supposed to accelerate based on the base effects didn't occur. In fact, we're slowing at the fastest rates. Right. If you look at the October uh, and September uh, leading indicators, if you look at the August hard data out of these economies and September hard data, we've got the you know, Chinese uh, import and export numbers, new cycle lows um, on the import side, of European industrial production this morning, a new cycle low. Uh, but don't you, don't you begin to have to talk about kind of negative synergy on the fundamentals? In other words, they're all feeding each other in a totally. negative direction. Totally. And, and secondly, negative signature on the psychology, on the sentiment. That makes it worse. And 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 clearly, that's why we have recessions, right? Yeah. Um, and particularly since you've spent, you know, eight, nine years, at least in the United States, not so much around the rest of the world, in a non-recession format where everyone's kind of leveraging up, um, you know, kind of the working up to their Minsky, next Minsky moment. You know? mm -hmm. So. That's what we we're talking about, and that, that's why we said, you know, what are the reasons why the next uh, recession can be more severe? Well, it's, it's not housing this time, but it's something else. It's always something else, right? Oh, it's, it's um, always. If you look at the history of, 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 of recessions, particularly when you analyze recessions through the lens of the credit market, it's always one sector of the economy. To the, the credit risk migrates to the other sector. So you go back to the '91 uh, sort of '91 uh, recession was it was the housing sector that really got things uh, going in the wrong direction there. And then in the '01 recession was a very small recession. It was the corporate sector that got things there. And then clearly in the great uh, the great recession, uh, the housing sector again. So you can make the case that it's 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 time for the corporates it's, to sort of bear. It's the, it's, the, it's the, time, and that was the one sector that got off scot free, and they all thought, well, this is a great time to. And and that's where we've seen a lot of little leverage uh, up. I mean, mm -hmm. all of those. Uh, the kind of leverage lending, you know, kind of a new term everyone's yeah. using now. But I think the the interestingly on the China side, one thing we haven't seen much pairing, at least in the news about, is the pairing of what's going on in the trade talks with what's going on in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So and Hong Kong and Taiwan. As you know, China's redoubling its effort to strip Taiwan of all of its remaining I mean they're going out to you know, Samoa and I don't know, these little islands are still making, I, they're making islands. Well, no, but I'm, I'm talking about the tiny little republicas in the middle of the Pacific that oh, still yes. have a relationship with Taiwan. Gotcha. And they're, they're getting them to back down. So, so China's going out there and browbeating even the tiniest country left <laughs> with a relationship with Taiwan to, to, to. Meanwhile, this thing is going on with Hong Kong. Now, the result is, is that the, uh, the, Taiwan is becoming more sort of anti-China than ever. In fact, um, the you know the leader, not Kuomintang, the other party is probably going to win this coming election, whereas she wasn't originally expected to win. Mm -hmm. um, but this, I think, the whole what's happening in Hong Kong is not been. People aren't focusing on that in terms of just a very simple question: How long can China tolerate? Hong Kong, the situation in Hong Kong. 
because what's happening now, the protesters are amping up the the demonstrations in basically a bid. I think the the it's not just you know the limited demands before. Now it's we want democracy, we want civil liberties, we don't want you know uh, uh, you know one country, two systems, all that. At what point will China say we cannot compromise with this, and the longer it lasts, the more it could turn into a virus that's already beginning to affect Taiwan. Mm -hmm. It could begin to, you know, migrate into the mainland. It's an embarrassment we cannot, you just, you know how touchy China is about this stuff. Totally. And the big lesson they took away from Tiananmen Square is that we did what the Soviets didn't. We did not have Glasnost and Perestroika. That's why we survived, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, totally. and the Soviets made the mistake, and that's why Putin and everyone else in the Soviet Union to this day regrets what they did. The greatest tragedy of the 20th century, says Vladimir Putin, right, is, no. that, is that we lost that system. Yep. So China thinks they made the great decision to go into Tiananmen Square and put that down forcefully. I cannot believe that the leaders aren't thinking the same thing right now. And I do think that one of the reasons why they're beginning to pursue this much more limited trade deal is not just because, well, they think they can, you know, they don't like Trump and they're beginning to think maybe they can look beyond Trump. Mm -hmm. But I think also that if they do go into Hong Kong, they know any broader deals could be off the table anyway. So why should they commit to one right now? Yeah. I do think that the that Hong Kong introduces a very interesting new near-term dynamic into what's going on. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, and you know, it's a loaded question, but clearly, you know, historically, you know, history is sort of coinc four turnings have co coincided with sort of kinetic warfare. Do you think yeah, the, yeah. that there's a probability of the U.S. going to war with China, either through military or cyber, or you know, in some form or fashion? I mean, clearly we have a trade war, but there's do you think it has a potential to get much worse as we progress throughout this fourth turning? You know. I that's hard to see right now, I mean, realistically. Uh, but I think there's so much that could happen on the economy and, and finance mm -hmm. that, and, and, and what could happen in domestic politics. That could feel like a war. Oh, yeah. I sometimes even feel, for example, and this has been raised with me many times, is the possibility of, of secession movements within the United States. I mean, why do we always talk about foreign wars? Yeah. Why don't we ever talk about divisions within this country? Yeah. Um, you know, what's going to happen if, if uh, Elizabeth Warren gets elected and somehow, you know, uh, does the nuclear option and gets her agenda through, uh, through the Senate mm -hmm. somehow? Uh, and then a number of states don't like it and they decide to withhold their tax. I mean, have you ever thought through this? I, no. I've actually <laughs> occasionally um, yeah. had people in the military, including the Marine Corps, ask me, you know, out in California, they have a Coronado base. A lot of Marines out there. What do we do if California does this? I mean, these are people who seriously ask that question. Wow. This brings up Fort Sumter scenarios, doesn't oh, it? Do you remember yes. how the Civil War started? Yes. It was not due to, you know, any overt act of aggression. <laughs> it was due to there was some. So what happened when all the southern states seceded? Was it in general all the postmasters and all the uh, all the federal commanders? All, you know, all went to West Point, right? Mm -hmm. They all basically just wrapped up their flags and said, "Okay, I guess we're not wanted here." You know, yeah, <laughs> we'll go home. But then there was this crazy bastard in Fort Sumter who said, "Damn it, I took an oath." <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to be faithful to this country. 
and that's what that's lit, what got that's what lit the war off. Yeah. You know, so you do think about these things, and you think all kinds of different scenarios for crisis. Yeah. They're not necessarily always the ones we're you know familiar with. I do think there could be an interesting cyber war component. Oh yeah, which is sort of warfare in a very different dimension than we've been used to. A lot of people are saying with Trump and his response to this uh, this uh, drone and uh, uh, cruise missile attack on the Saudi refineries is, well, why doesn't he just uh, shut down all the lights in Tehran for 48 hours, you know? <laughs> and Iran's saying, we will treat that as an act of war. That's another interesting dimension, Darius, isn't it? So kind of have the a different war scenario. Yeah, totally. Well, speaking of... Uh... <laughs> A lot of questions on war in the in the in the uh, in the queue. We obviously just addressed that, so I don't want to go sort of beat that too hard because that's hard to predict. Yeah, it's hard um, to predict. Bring it bring it back to financial markets at the yeah, bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. If we can restrain ourselves, if we can restrain ourselves from the right. next the coming U.S. civil war. <laughs> okay. All right, Michelle's asking, um, how how can Japan or Europe with bad demographics, high debt, and low growth get out of their current situations? Uh, have we ever seen a, a, a scenario in history where we've seen economies come out of these types of sort of secular stagnation themes? Does it always end in war and inflation? Um, well, we've only seen one modern example of anything approaching this. Again, it was the 1930s. It was a, a time of very low birth rates. Of course, societies still were generally much younger then, and the decline in the birth rates wasn't anything like we see today, Total. right? Uh, but I, so the, the quick answer to the question is we have no historical examples. Uh, but presumably they can adapt and adjust. I think uh, uh, Japan has adjusted and adapted about as well as you can expect. Total. But we continually see new frontiers being breached on our way to defining what an aging society is. And I will say, everyone's focused on Japan. You know, Japan has come to be the sort of the, the canary in the coal mine of an aging world. And the reason is, is they went, they had a low fertility rate much earlier than the rest of the world. That's why they're way ahead of the curve. That's why they're already depopulating, why they already have such, you know, high dependency ratios in the elderly and so on and, and all these liabilities. But other societies are aging much faster, mm -hmm. right? And a great example of this is South Korea. Yes. Now, South Korea Disaster. just went last year underneath kind of the sound barrier. They had a total fertility rate come in in 2018 below one. That's the first time that any full it. nation has done that. Never heard of it. So we, you know, we gave that a big... Uh, well, big red flag. Yeah, we, well, we got that big red flag, and we, we wrote about it because uh, South Korea has a combination of extremely low fertility. They have they have almost an exaggerated they they're exaggerated case of almost everything that leads to low fertility. Um, they are heavily urban. They're one of the most urban countries. I think I think about one quarter of everyone under age 30 in South Korea lives in Seoul. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's the first thing. Super. Urban uh, girls, uh, city life women. is associated with lower fertility. Yes. High education. Yes. South Korea has one of the highest. In fact, they have the highest rate of college attainment of young people in the world. Wow. Uh, something like, you know, 65, 70% four-year college degree. And it's incredible. You, you, you wait till Liz Warren's president. <laughs> Joking. There we go. Um, and then you have this this extremely strong Confucian ethic 
which is a very binary sense of gender roles, which mean that women, once they marry, find it very hard to survive economically. So what yeah. are women doing? Not getting married. Not getting married, <laughs> yeah. And they're not having kids. Yeah. And, and in the Confucian scenario, you know, the women have to basically not only serve their kids and their husband, but also serve their in-laws. Oh. <laughs> One more reason, right? Don't get married. Yeah. And it's also a system in which the huge priority to educating the young so that they spend all their money with maybe one child, making sure that they get into the university, you know, one of the sky, one of the three big universities in South Korea, mm -hmm. or even sending their kids abroad to an English-speaking country to learn perfect English. Mm -hmm. So you have this enormous skewing of incentives uh, away from having kids. And if, if, if anything, having one kid and spending a lot of money on them, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, Confucian societies as a whole have very low fertility right now. That's not just China, it's, it's yeah. all over East Asia. But presumably these countries can take that burden and, and survive. There's no reason in theory why a very uh, uh, rapidly aging society can continue to have productivity growth, you know, among the people that work, right? And so you could have rising standard of living or growth or, or rising real wages for anyone who's still working, mm -hmm. but You're not its GDP new. could be falling at the same time. Totally. You're not absorbing yeah. new entrants into the labor force. You're not absorbing. Well, there aren't any. Well, they aren't. And that's the other thing about these Confucian societies. They tend to be very ethnocentric and tend to be very averse to. Now, what, they're, what they are doing now, both Japan and South Korea are doing it, they're bringing workers in on special visas, kind of keeping them separate and, and making sure that they're sent home. And you know, so this is a challenge a lot of people are doing as well. But, and they're giving huge subsidies to people to have kids, but they're not working very well yet. Cool, all right, let's keep moving, thank you. Um, Liz is asking, says in the fourth turn, you said that during the 10 years after the crisis, so we'll assume that the 08 recession or the great financial crisis was the crisis, we'll have avoided, we'll have avoided confronting the crisis and, and continue to kick the can down the road. Um, it seems like that's been spot on. So do you agree that you know, we're still kicking the can down the road or do you think we're finally getting to the point where we actually have to confront and reorganize and redistribute institutions? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting in the fourth thing. We also talked about a moment of regeneracy. When you kick the can down the road, but there comes a point at which you realize you, you've got to suddenly change. In other mm -hmm. words, it, it goes from gridlock, doing nothing, you know, staving off choices, to suddenly, okay, we got to stake everything on this choice, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we did in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And we did it to some extent uh, during the Great Depression with the New Deal. Uh, and then ultimately, of course, came World War II, and that's where the country was all in with that. And oh. it really gave, it really gave uh, 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 numbers momentum to the New Deal. And, and of course, we came out of that a transformed country mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1940s. Um, it's, it's interesting to look at that scenario now because right now we're in this kick the can down the road, total gridlock. I mean, there is no one in Washington, Washington D.C., where I live, right? Mm -hmm. There's no one in Washington, D.C. doing anything. I mean, not only are they not engaging in any long-term issues, they're not even doing really any short-term issues. Yeah, they're not doing anything. We, we don't even off. know whether the, the new NAFTA, new NAFTA is going to be approved. We don't know anything will be approved. Totally. We don't know if Congress has to do it. It's basically nothing is happening. So, you know, the White House is acting through these, you know, these Special edicts channels. and these new forms of executive authority, and then Congress is resisting, and the media is criticizing. So, basically, the state is adrift. 
And this is the other thing you have to consider. Whatever happens in history to a country beset in that condition means its, its response is going to be um, you, uh, ineffective or, or yes. non-existent. So what happens eventually is everyone says, to hell with it, let's just go with something, right? Let's go with something. And, and that's what happens. That's why I think 2020 could be a very interesting election. So I think the mood of the public is, one of the reasons why everyone voted for Trump is we, we just got to do something different, different right? Yeah. There was it just, Trump is a wrecking ball. Let's vote for him. Let's just get him in. And now that he's been in, why not bring in a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren? Let's just, let's have the ball come from the other direction and wreck it the other way, <laughs> totally. right? In other words, something to get the country moving again. And there's, you could say, well, that's pretty destructive. You know, that's not moderation and reason. And, but on the other hand, it's, it's how people ultimately get mobilized. You push them out of their comfort zone one way or another. Mm -hmm. And I think in some sense, that's what the voters are looking for. And, and I think it's a moment of maximum political instability, particularly with Gen Xers who've become the dominant voting age generation today. Yes. And they're just a completely loose cannon. They have no loyalties to any they party. Are, they have loyalties to nothing. To nothing. They're just looking for, just show me something that works. And as soon as I see a glimmer of that, I'll get on board. Gotcha. That's, that's what does work. So this is a great question. I think um, Mark is sort of asking along these lines, this sort of generational tension. At what point do millennials raise inflation expectations immense boomers who clearly want to keep inflation low? They're living on some form of fixed income, certainly as they continuously retire. You know, at what point does this sort of you know, transition, this, this demographic shift, uh, this tension you're sort of highlighting cause a, a material shift in both short and long-term inflation expectations? Next recession. Next recession. Next recession will go to an incomes policy, will go to, you know, Modern monetary theory, and, and we will force inflation. We'll force it. And when that happens, you want to be all into tips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> tips <laughs> right? and gold. Yeah. You want to be tips and gold and, and a lot of this stuff. And, and just imagine the gains there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be a great place to be. Totally. Totally. Uh, <clears throat> we well, kind of hit on this, but I definitely think uh, you know a lot of these questions are sort of similar. Steve's asking, do, are there any historical corollaries between the current political environment like specifically U.S. politic, political environment, any other environment in history, uh, there are a lot of narratives being tossed around. But one of the one of the sort of corollaries being thrown around is Watergate. Uh, do you think that's a, a appropriate corollary or analog? No, and the reason is is because one of the reasons why Nixon resigned is that he knew that everyone in the Senate was going to vote against him. Yeah. <laughs> The Republican Party was going to vote against it. Mm -hmm. he, he, all the, the leaders of the Republican Party, all the, the wise old men, were basically saying, you're going to be voted down. So he resigned. Mm -hmm. That will absolutely not happen. What you will have instead is a uh, fanatically divided country, more, device, more divided than ever, basically two countries. That, that would, that's what really worries me now. Mm -hmm. in, in, in Watergate, basically the system worked. Yeah. I mean, the two parties found common ground, as they generally did during that era, mm -hmm. and said, okay, yeah, we'll get rid of this guy and we'll move on. And we'll start doing other things. You know, we, we just put a man on the moon, you know. <laughs> we, we still had the idea that America could do stuff, right? It wasn't a great moment for America. We had been defeated in Vietnam and a few things obviously had gone wrong. Totally. But, but I think that was not the same position. Right now you have a position of two Americas. I, I think the, the probability is 
infinitesimal that you will ever get two-thirds of that Senate to vote Trump out of office. Totally. The real purpose of this impeachment process, in my opinion, was by the progressives to align the mood in Congress with the mood of who they want to win in the nomination, mm -hmm. which is Elizabeth Warren. And, mm -hmm. and I think, yeah, and obviously, the collateral damage being Hunter Biden. Joe Biden. Yeah. And, and you can see, you can just see how they're, they're standing. If you just look at real clear politics, you can see as soon as impeachment came in, Elizabeth Warren like this, Joe Biden oh, like that. Totally. I think that was the purpose. And I think Elizabeth Warren would rather run against the background of an impeachment process because it naturally pushes all the wind toward the more populist radical candidate, which mm -hmm. she has staked out now, you know, and, and particularly with Bernie, looks like he's sick. He's probably, you know, people are wondering whether he, he really is a presidential contender. She's, she seems like she's inheriting most of those voters. They, they aren't, you'd think that particularly a lot of your non-college uh, Bernie, Sa Bernie Sanders supporters might have gone to Biden, but they aren't. They're mainly going to Warren. So do, going back, I mean, you famously sort of made the view that based on your fourth turning framework and also based on our economic analysis of where the, the jobs market was, where the economy was back in 2016, you know, we had a firm view that Trump was one, one a contender, but ultimately would win the election. Do you see sort of similar dynamics happening underneath the hood with Liz Warren with respect to her candidacy? Is, is, does she have a credible shot to become U.S. president, or is this, you know, is this kind of a done deal uh, in the favor of Trump? You know, I when when in doubt, just to align my expectations, I look at future, you know futures markets, you know, mm -hmm. and they're out there. You can look at the probabilities, uh, and I think that it's now like 55, 45 that the that the Democrats will win in 2020. Uh, and you look at what's the probabilities that that Democrat will be Elizabeth Warren. I'm thinking it's, it's pretty dominant right now. I mean, she's she's way ahead of anyone else in futures markets now yeah, as, being yeah. the, as the winner. She's, the, you know, the first few primaries she's gonna win. Uh, she's obviously gonna have a much harder time in the South. Um, uh, and that's where Biden, you know, is presumably gonna do better. But um, I, I, I think it looks good. And right now, remember, it's 55-45 for the Democratic contender with unemployment at a, what, 50-year low. Yeah, 50, yeah. So, so yeah. think about where he is positioned right now and think about what that could be like. Totally. You know, 10 months from now. Cool. Well, a not inconsequential risk of that, so that's definitely something we think you know markets have to pay attention to over the next 12 months. Yeah. Neil, this has been awesome. I appreciate your, your knowledge on all these topics is encyclopedic, uh, and we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our audience. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. 
Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.